Aaron, thank you for that prayer. We finished a series last week on unity over division, and I fully believe that the best way for our church and for our country to stay unified is when we choose to pray for one another. And we actually apply the scriptures, and so I'm very thankful for that prayer. My name is Mitch White, and I'm the executive pastor for the family of Lake Forest Churches. And I want you to know something, Lake Forest. I want you to know that the pastors here, we do not take for granted the fact that you trust us, the fact that you trust us when we talk about hard things and and things that are kind of in your face, and we don't avoid those things. In fact, you don't only trust us, you expect us to talk about those things and talk about those things in a way that helps you grow. And so I appreciate that trust. I'm thankful for that, especially as we move into this four-week series called Money Talks. And here's the best time and the best reason, the best reason that we can tell you for why this is the best time for us to hit this series is because as a church, our giving is actually above budget and our spending is below. We are not in a situation in which our giving is down and our expenses are up. And for those of you who actually grew up in the church, you always knew when the budget was not being met because that's when the pastor gives the money talk, seven times a year. But that's not the place that we are. I want to brag on you for a little bit, Westlake. I want you to actually know that the Westlake giving at this point, in the middle of this COVID and everything else that's going on in our country, your giving to the general fund is $23,000 above the projected budget. Now, but also because of the COVID and all the ministries, we've, we've not un- been able to apply, unfortunately. But the other positive part is your staff, their spending is $15,000 below. And so at this point, we need to celebrate the fact that there's a $38,000 positive in the general budget. Well done. Here's something that we've believed from day one at Lake Forest Church, and I've been here since the very beginning. Since day one, here's something we've believed. Lake Forest Church does not need your money. God may call you to give to Lake Forest Church because you believe in the work that he's doing here and how the funds that you uh, give, we're using those for the mission of God. But I want you to know Lake Forest Church does not need your money. We simply long for everyone here that is in a spiritual journey, anyone that comes here who wants to grow in faith in their love of Jesus, that's our desire is that you would grow daily knowing the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. But we also believe that without a doubt, you cannot grow in your faith in Jesus. You cannot grow in your walk with God unless you learn and apply what he says about stewardship and what he has given you and being free of the slavery that many people are in with money. And so we're going to talk about this over these next four weeks simply because we love you and we want you to trust God more. We're going to talk about it in very practical ways. We're going to talk about budgeting. We're going to talk about saving. We're going to talk about giving. We're going to talk about investing. We're going to give you practical steps to do in all of this, and I hope that you will grow immensely over these four weeks. But before we get into that, I have a question for you that's going to actually paint the canvas of which we're going to give these practical steps. Here's the question for you today. Where in your life 
Have you missed seeing God because you trusted what you saw instead of what God says? Where have you missed an opportunity for him to show up and for him to do a miracle, for him to provide for you, for him to prove himself, for him to answer a prayer that you've prayed all because you looked at a situation or a circumstance, you made your own judgment, you made your own plans instead of trusting his promises to you, waiting on him, and therefore you cut short a miracle that he could do. Let me rephrase this question. Let me uh, let you look at it in a different way. Where today are you having a hard time trusting God's Word, His counsel, His guidance, because your eyes look at the situation and all you can see is that God's Word can't be true? Let me tell you a few stories today. I want us to grab a hold of some principles uh, around stewardship, and I'm going to do that by telling you a number of stories. These first few stories are actually stories right from the Bible, and I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning, to Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, where the first man and the first woman were created, you can read this story in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, very first book of the Bible. I encourage you to go back and read that. There are two trees in the middle of the garden that God created, and, and the first man, Adam, actually walks past these two trees every single day. And these two trees, this is what we learn about them, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the garden, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Remember that statement. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16, this is what he says. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So God creates Eve and Adam, and then he, well, he creates Eve after all of this, and then Adam tells Eve the same things that God had told him about these trees. Some verses later, you see a serpent show up on the scene, and he deceives Eve, making her question God's word. Here's what he says in verses 4 and 5. You surely won't die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent was right in the second part of what he said, but not in the first part. And he's twisting God's word, trying to make the man and the woman to not believe God's word, but believe what they see. You see, he's right in that God did know they'd become like him, knowing good and evil. But God didn't want them to eat of the tree because he knew that the man was not created to carry the weight of the breadth of evil and good. And so he knew that as soon as he ate of this tree, his eyes would be open, and he would know the depth of evil, and he was never made to carry that weight, and it would kill him. All of us understand this. All the situations, you can sit in front of a TV right now, and you can watch two hours of news, and you can just watch and feel your body dying from all of the stuff, the disease, the racial injustice, natural disasters, murders, hatred, politics, day after day, hatred and evil, and it's killing us. We weren't made 
to hold on to that depth of knowledge. And God knew it. But here's what the woman saw, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And then she gave some to Adam, and he ate it. And their eyes were open. They immediately felt shame, guilt, and their relationship between one another was broken. Their relationship with God was broken. And they began to accuse. They began to blame. And God moved them out of the garden, protecting them from living like this for all of eternity. But immediately, it meant they not walk with him there again. It meant there was a loss of innocence and a closeness with God, now living under the weight of knowing evil and good and their bodies deteriorating and their relationships broken. Why? Because they trusted what they saw more than God's Word. Eve saw that the tree was pleasing to the eye, good for food, just like God said it would be. But she also saw it was desirable for wisdom, and she wanted what she saw far more than trusting God's Word. Let's fast forward uh, a while later, and in this story, years later, God's people, the Israelites, they're slaves to the Egyptians. God sent a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt into freedom. The Pharaoh who was leading all of Egypt let them go, and then as they left, he changed his mind, and then he sent armies to go and destroy and to kill them. You can read this story in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus chapter 14. But here's what happens after the Pharaoh lets them go. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're terrified. They're angry at Moses. They're blaming him now for taking them, even though at the beginning they were actually excited about leaving Egypt, they're now angry. Why? Because they looked up and they trusted what they saw. They trusted what they saw more than God's Word. Because of what they saw, they were overwhelmed with fear and admitted that they were okay living in slavery. But here's the funny part of the story for me. Verse 13, Moses answers the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, they'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. Now, here's why that's really funny for me. That's kind of the brave heart speech. That's a brave heart on the horse. He's ready to rally the troops. Here's why that's really funny, though, because he's yelling at them, just stand still. The next verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. You see, the Israelites, they're ready to turn back. Moses is saying, stand still. And God is saying, move. I need you to move. You see, trusting God is about moving forward and into the very things that we see 
that are very frightening and scary for us. But God says, I'm going to do my thing, but you're going to have to move into those things that make you afraid. God divides the Red Sea. They walk through to safety. The Pharaoh's armies are destroyed because they trusted God's word to move as opposed to trusting what they saw and just standing still or going backwards. Sometime later, this same group of people are now about to go into the very land that God promised them, a land that God said, this is your land. I've prepared it for you. All you have to do is go in and take it. You can read that story in the fourth book of the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible, book of Numbers, chapter 13. Moses and the people, they get to the foot of Canaan, and they send 12 spies into the land. And this is what these spies say when they come back to talk to Moses. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there, boy, they're powerful. And the cities, they're fortified, they're large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites, well, they live near the sea along the Jordan. Caleb, one of the spies who was there with them, also he comes in verse 30. He says, he silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can do this. Verse 31 but the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites this bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored, well, it devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in their own eyes in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Caleb and Joshua then speak, two of the spies. The land we passed through and explored, it's exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we'll devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. They declare to the people, you've got to stop trusting what you see, and you've got to trust God's word to us. He will protect us. Unfortunately, Moses listens to the ten spies who say we can't do it, and all the Israelites spend the next 40 years in the desert until every one of them over the age of 22 died. And the only ones who actually got to go into the promised land are Caleb and Joshua because they believe God's word over what they saw. See, I believe that we miss out on God's promises, his victories in our life, his ways of blessing us and watching us because we get scared of what we see and we determine a different path instead of trusting God's word. How does this apply to us and the stewardship of money? You know, we've been in some very strange economic times. 
Uh, for those of you who track the economy, a lot of people describe the economy um, in one of these types of letters. A lot of people describe it with a V, meaning that our economy has dropped rapidly, but it's going to bounce back pretty rapidly. Others describe it in the shape of a U, that it's dropped and it'll stay down for a little while and then it'll come back up. All of us are afraid that it'll just drop drastically like an L and it'll never bounce back up. But there's another way that a lot of people describe our economy and it's with the letter K. A friend of mine who is a church consultant, he described, his name is Dave Travis, he describes it this way, in that there are some households that are doing well in this season, and their economic fortunes are growing. That's the top part of the K. Some households, they're not doing well, and they're in severe uh, distress economically. That's the bottom portion of that K. But he says a lot of people aren't describing, though, that there is a middle portion of that K as well. And there are a lot of people who are holding their own due to their investments or their retirement income. It's being steady for now. Here's what you need to understand. Every single one of us fall in one of those three categories. And if you have chosen to follow Jesus or if you want to grow in knowing more of who God is and more about his love for you, there are stewardship principles that apply to all three categories, no matter what that category defines you. And those are some of the principles we're going to look at today. You're not immune from them. You're not excused from these principles, no matter where you sit on that letter K. What does it mean right now? For us to care well for those in our body right here and in our community who might be in the lower portion of that K. What does it mean if you're in the top portion of that K? What does it mean for you to have good budgets and good spending habits so you're not just spending frivolous, but you're investing in others and in the long haul? We're going to talk about all of these things, yet we can't talk about them again unless you answer the question, what decisions are you making out of what you see as opposed to what God said? I want to challenge you today. Put your money where your ears are. And keep your ears open to God's word. I want to help you to grab a hold of this. For those of you who don't know me, um, today I'm going to tell you a lot of my story. For those of you who do know me, you may not know my personal uh, financial story. And so for the last part of our time, I want to just simply tell you my story of how my wife, Virginia, and I have learned to trust God and to be good stewards. We were married in 1990. Uh, Virginia and I married uh, then. We were married and we had over $40,000 in debt when we married. We had school loans. We had to pay for our own wedding. Uh, we had car debts. I was in my last year of mechanical engineering school at North Carolina State University. She worked for a mortgage company making around $30,000 a year. So a year later, though, we make this huge decision. I'm not going to go full into engineering school. In fact, I'm instead going to go into college ministry. So I'm making a, we're making a decision that I'm going to leave an option of starting at $75,000 a year to the option of raising, begging people for money of $30,000, of which I get paid $18,000. So get this. We knew that God was making it clear that we were going into this. We had over $40,000 in debt. Our combined income was $50,000. And so we knew it was going to take a quite a long time to pay things off. 
But then we made two other decisions. That next decision we made, we want to have a baby. The other decision we made is we want Virginia to be able to stay at home and to raise our child. We now have over $40,000 in debt and an income of $18,000 a year. You actually should be looking at me and saying, man, you are pretty foolish. Actually, no, you are pretty stupid about financial things. And you know what? You were right. But catch the irony of this. I'm your executive pastor. I oversee a $4 million budget that you give to. Now who's foolish? But the story gets better. In that same year, we made the biggest decision we've ever made. It was the single most life-changing decision we'd ever make in our marriage. It's rooted in another story in the Bible where God's people, the priest, were being uh, accused by God of robbing him. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, the people of God, they're supposed to bring 10% of everything they own to the priest. For the priest to use it for the purposes of God, for him to care for those who don't have enough, and for him to care for his own family. But the priests are letting these people get away with not bringing the 10%. And mainly, there's an act of obedience that God is calling these people to say to God that they realize that everything belongs to him and to trust him to provide. But the priests were just letting them get away with it. They were supposed to bring the first fruit, the first of their sheep, the best of their crops and animals. But instead, they'd wait until the end and see what was left over, and they brought the worst The worst fruit, the worst of the animals with the attitude, we have to take care of ourselves first and then just give enough to appease God. And that's where you find the first principle. The first principle, nothing belongs to you. You're only a steward of what God gives to you. But their thinking was, well, we just got to appease God. Yet they blame him for not having enough food. We just got to keep him satisfied, but yet they wonder why isn't he protecting us? Given what we have left over, after I purchased far more than I could ever use or need, but then I'm going to beg him for peace from the stress and the anxiety of juggling all of it. This is all my stuff, but I better keep God paid off to keep him happy. That was their attitude. And here's the part of the story that changed our lives. Chapter 3, verse 9. God said to the priest, you're robbing me of tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you won't have enough room for it. And at that time, for some reason, the Lord deeply convicted Virginia and I. And he convicted us that... We needed to give. I was rich, and I didn't realize it. You guys are thinking, no, Mitch, you weren't rich. You were broke. But we were rich. We just didn't know how to steward what God gave to us. And so the second principle is what we grabbed a hold of. Give the first 10% back to God to say that you're going to trust him with all 100%. You see, money talks. And we started to figure out what we were saying to God with the money he gave us. We were saying, we don't trust you. 
But by giving the first 10%, we were saying to him, we trust you to take care of all of it. So we made a decision to give the very first 10% of everything that we made before we paid any bill, before we paid any debt. The single most life-changing decision in our marriage. Virginia and I have now been married for 30 years. We've not missed a single month in which we haven't given at least 10% to the work that God is doing outside of our home. God told us to test him in this with our finances and watch him open the floodgates. So let me tell you some of the floodgates that he opened for us. In our 12th year of marriage, not overnight, but in our 12th year of marriage, we became debt-free of everything except for our house payment. Now get this. Our 12th year of marriage, I was still making less than what we started in debt of $40,000 when we got married. That's what God did. And still making less than $40,000, he made us debt-free. In the last 18 years, we've never missed a month in which we didn't pay off our credit cards. We, the only other debts we've ever had is we've had six used cars over these last 18 years. Two of them were for our kids. That's right, each of us in the last 18 years have only had two cars that came with payments. And we paid those off as quickly as we could. We took on some debt from sending both of our children through college. We weren't able to save during those early years because we were in so much debt. And so when it came time to go send our kids to college, we took on a little bit more debt. But we wanted to give our kids the gift of when they graduated college, they'd have zero debt. We wanted them to start a different place than where we are. Two months ago, we paid off our last college loan. And so once again, we're at a place where we only have a house payment. And in fact, during the years my kids were in college, we were giving over 12% to what God was doing. Here's what blows my mind. And I actually sat down and figured all of this out because I wanted to see the floodgates and how they've been open. In these 30 years, God's paid off, off $40,000 in debt. He's helping us buy a house that we hope to have completely paid off in seven years. He's paid off six cars, paid two college kids' loans, provided what we needed to raise two kids. We took vacations every year. We always had food on the table. We paid medical bills. We kept appliances running, provided other ones when those were broken. We got to go to Disney World three times as a family. My wife's gone eight times. That's another issue. We celebrated 20th year anniversary in Hawaii together, 10 days there. We took our family to Europe for two weeks. We spent a week together in Africa loving on children in deep poverty. We went on an unreal safari while we were there. We've traveled to five continents together. And here's the greatest thing of all. In the middle of all of that, God has allowed us to give away over $300,000 to the work that he is doing in the church. He did this because we gave him a chance to do it by believing his word over what we saw. We've gotten to be a part of building a church in Huntersville, in Davidson, in Denver, in India. We've gotten to feed orphans in Bolivia, India, Africa. We've gotten to send people to Germany, to Europe, to the Bahamas, to Bolivia, to the Honduras, to India, to Africa, to go and tell people about the love of Jesus. In the last 30 years, we've given over $300,000, but for some reason, God's used us to tell the gospel to over three 
300,000 people. That's remarkable. And I don't tell you any of that to brag. I have nothing to brag. I only tell you that is because God keeps His Word. And I so long for you to trust His Word over what you see. Tithing, giving the first 10% to the Word of God, to God's work, it's not about the money. But tithing has taught us to trust God. It's taught us to not be foolish with the other 90%. It's taught us to live within our means. It's taught us to be content with what we have. It's taught us to enjoy those around us. It's taught us to care for those around us. It's taught us to let others care for us. It's taught us to be creative with time together. It's taught us to watch in expectation of something great to happen. It's taught us to be generous people. It's taught us to be storytellers of what God is doing. It's taught us to be story writers of what God is doing in other people. It's taught us mainly to be patient and to wait on Him. Because we were patient and we waited on Him, we waited on buying new cars. We've had three cars given to us. We waited on purchasing a car, and one car lasted two years longer than the mechanic said it was going to. We waited. Refrigerators, washers, dryers, they kept running. But because we also waited, God's allowed us to give away a car, a car that we told a person it may last a year. Five years now, this car is still running, and this person is loving it. We've waited, and God's allowed us to give away appliances, give away cash anonymous. We've sent people that couldn't afford it financially on vacations. Tithing has taught us how to trust God, not only with our money, but our gifts and our time. It has taught us to love the same way that God loves. I long for you to fall in love with Jesus. And I believe that the best way to do that is by being good stewards of your money and following those two principles. So I'm going to end by challenging you in these two ways. First, start trusting God's Word more than what you see. In order to do that, though, you've got to know his word. So I want to challenge you. Start by saying, I'm just going to pick up my Bible daily, and I'm going to start reading. Maybe you start reading with the stories that I've hit today. But I also encourage you, get them plugged into a community group. Get plugged into a men's or women's Bible study. Contact the church and let us help you plug into a place where people are trying to figure out and to learn, God, what are you saying? The second challenge I'm going to give you Make one decision this week that is purposefully choosing to trust what he says more than what you see. Maybe there's a relationship that you've given up on that maybe God's saying, I need you to trust me and you need to go and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you need to trust what God has said and you need to forgive that person for the 10th time. That's still 480 times less than what Jesus calls us to. Maybe you need to forgive them. But maybe this week you need to start giving 10% of what God has given to you. And I challenge you, don't let another day go by. And I know some of you are looking at your finances. You're going, Mitch, I don't see it. There's no way that I can do that. And there's a part of me that wants to say, okay, start with 2%, start with 5%. I can't tell you that. All I can tell you is what the Scripture said. And God said, challenge me by bringing 10%. So I'm challenging you that. Trust his word over what you see. But I'm going to make you a deal. 
Because God made a challenge. I took him up on it. I'm going to make you a challenge as well. If you give 10% for these next six months to Lake Forest Church, and after six months you regret it, send me an email. We will send every dime of that back to you. That's how much I believe that this will change you. If you think this is a gimmick, then I'm going to encourage you, send that 10% then to another church in this area. I can name a few of them to give to. And after six months, if you regret it, send me an email, and I'll send you that money back. Now, I'm going to call that pastor because he's going to give it to me. But I'm going to challenge you, and I'm telling you this, folks, because this is not about the church needing your money. This is about you falling deeper in love with Jesus, and that is our heart's desire. As we close, I want to be sure that you don't hear me saying that from here it's all going to be beautiful, it's all going to be wonderful. Again, it took us 12 years to move to uh, being debt-free. But here's what I can promise you will happen when you start doing this. Your car is going to break down. Your house might flood. You're going to get a speeding ticket from a police officer that's going to jack your insurance up. You're going to have an unexpected medical bill. Why? Because that's just what happens sometimes. But you're going to want to go back, or you're just going to want to stand still. But God is saying, move on. Let me fulfill my promise to you. Will you give him a chance? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that 30 years ago, you challenged Virginia and I with your word. And because we chose at that time as these young couple in a lot of debt to trust your word, over these years, you have given us so much freedom in so many places. Because we trusted you there, you've protected our marriage for 30 years. Because we trusted you there, you've helped us raise our children. Because you trusted you there, you've helped us walk through a very difficult year. But we know without a shadow of a doubt, your word is far more trustworthy than all the things that we see. I pray for the person that's listening to this right now, that you would give them the courage to trust you and to follow you in this area. In your name we pray, amen.